0: Yes. Uh, So, hi, everybody. Welcome to, uh, I don't know what to call the show anymore, but it it used to be Wakey Wakey. I'm not sure about that title anymore. I've become aware that everyone who watches is already awake, so uh, (laughs) that's just the nature of it. But um, tonight I'm really excited to be talking to James Corbett, one of the most intelligent, eloquent, true journalists of our time who... um, puts his own life on the line in a sense to bring you news that you can't get from the conventional media really a lot of the time. And um, just uh, I love the way that you're a clear, sovereign, uh, anarchist, voluntarist, and uh, you're also so rational. And uh, I feel like you're one of the people who I could actually, I could sit my parents down in front of you and they would stop thinking
1: I'm insane. I'm looking forward to meeting this person you're introducing. I'm, I'm hoping he'll show up soon. It's you, gorgeous. Oh, no, it couldn't possibly be. Well, that's the most flattering introduction, but now I feel I have to live up to that introduction, which is going to be a monumental task indeed. So uh, I better no, be on no, my no, no, game no. here.
0: I I think of you as one of the great contributors to the revolution of consciousness of our times because you, when you're getting information on the internet, you have to learn to trust a source, right? And that takes years. It takes a lot of scrutiny and it takes... Um, faith at the start and then cross-referencing all sorts of things. And you're one of the people that, for me, I keep coming back to because I never can prove anything wrong that you've ever put out there. And that's a really good average. You're doing better than
1: anyone else. Well, I certainly try my best. I will yeah. uh, I, I will accept what you're saying uh, if only we can agree on the, the idea of trust. And I, I hope it's not blind trust or blind faith because that's the first thing I always stress to everyone out there is please Do not take my word for it. Please do try to prove me wrong and do search the information. That's why I always put the sources for everything I talk about in the show notes for all of my podcast episodes and interviews, because I want people to see where I got my information from and how I put it together, because there's a lot of different ways to put the information together and different ways to interpret it. So I'm just putting my interpretation out there.
0: And there's also nothing wrong with being wrong either. You know, I've been wrong a million times and will continue to be so.
1: Believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, It's such an interesting time, of course, but I I know that you're one of the people on the crest of the wave of this new uh, consciousness that we're moving into within ourselves and then watching the world reflect that back at us. So I'd like to know, when did you first start to realize that you yourself were um, awakening to these broader truths that you'd been fed from school and other authorities?
1: Well, I uh, I often start my, my wake-up narrative at uh, 2006, around my, I guess that would have been my 20, 20 something or other birthday, um, <laughs> but I moved into a new apartment, and at that time, um, the apartment came with a free internet connection, which I hadn't had in my apartment for several years, um, so I had been living... Kind of, you know, going to internet cafes to check my email type of thing. So I I was kind of detached from internet culture for a while. And yeah. when I plugged back into the internet, suddenly there were things like YouTube and Google Video and these resources of all of these documentaries and all of the things that I could research to my heart's desire. And I had never really been in that paradigm before. I'd always been used to kind of the television or programming paradigm where you can choose between... 30 different flavors of bagel, but you can certainly never choose a muffin, you know. And it's, it, they tell you what uh, what you can watch and when you can watch it. So suddenly I was exposed to all this information. I could really just go and, and and research things I was interested in at any time I wanted. It was a it was a really a transformational process for me because, of course, I started to get into things that were political, but I always considered myself political in nature. And it wasn't long before I started encountering information that was completely, completely different from what I'd heard before and, and And uh, things that I couldn't, as you were saying, I couldn't prove it wrong when I actually went to prove it. And uh, that started me down the rabbit hole in earnest. But I guess I could um, actually even locate it even earlier. Um, There's a a couple of incidents that happened even before I really started the research that became the Corbett Report. One of them was when I was going home uh, from Japan here to Canada to attend my uh, best friend's wedding. And I, I um, at that time, also I had a bit of facial hair, and I was a single man traveling from Asia. So um, of course, I got pulled over for some extra inspection, <laughs> and uh, so they started. Uh, there was the, the customs uh, a woman was pulling stuff out of my suitcase, and you know, looking at each thing very, you know, very earnestly as if this is going to determine whether or not I'm a terrorist. And like looking at my book, I was reading a book by Chuck Polanyiuk at that time, the the author of Fight Club. Um, I can't remember which book it was. And they were asking me, do you like this book? As if, you know, and I was thinking, I wonder what answer I could give that would prove I'm not a terrorist.
0: And imagine they pulled you up and did that to you now. After the years of um, your profile on the internet, you'd be thinking, "Oh my God, you're right. I am. I am a. You know, I am well, a." Domestic-
1: yeah. Of course. Now I'd be thinking, "Well, obviously they must know about my background." But at they the time, of course, you- I was I was a, a nobody, uh, an anonymous person, and it was it was just so shocking to me that when they, for example, um, they pulled out uh, my cell phone, which I brought for from Japan. And it was a new phone and uh, I had a few pictures on it that I'd taken a night out with some friends. And uh, they started looking through my pictures on my cell phone and asking me about who is this person and uh, and why are there so few pictures on this phone and things like this. And I, I thought that was so bizarre. And then I guess the final straw was when she pulled out my diary and my journal Uh-oh. and, and I started flipping through it. Uh, uh, can I take a photocopy of this? <laughs> and I was just floored by this. I just, I couldn't believe there. I was going, getting all this level of treatment. And uh, it, that was that was kind of an arrow through the brain moment for me. It really did make me start to question what what on earth was happening and what what was this war on terror paradigm really about? I mean, I'd always had my suspicions about it, but that was that was really hit home for me. Um, and another part of this uh, waking up process, I was watching Gandhi, the uh, the biopic, um, starring
0: uh, Benjamin starring ben Kingsley? Kingsley. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. and um, and there was a scene in there um, where. Uh, it, when he was in South Africa and there was the identity card that they brought in for the Indians in South Africa. And so as part of the protest, they, they were burning their identity card, which was against the law the the British were going to lock them up for it. and um, And that really struck home with me as I was sitting here watching it in Japan, because in Japan... Every single foreign resident has a little foreign resident card that you have to carry with you. And by law, a policeman on the street can stop you anywhere you are and ask to see your foreign resident card and, and question you. That And there's, I mean, that's actually the law here. And yeah. and it never, I, I was sitting there watching this on this screen about this, this, this person who had been protesting and willing to be beaten up and thrown in jail for the burning his identity card you know 100 years ago and here i was sitting here in the in the comfort of my apartment in japan with one of those cards in my pocket and it had never occurred to me that that was something that i should be concerned about and that was another arrow through the brain moment that was part of this process so i think the waking up process started a long time before it really started, if you know what I mean. I mean, the Absolutely. seeds were being planted and then they started to flower once I got exposed to the water of the internet.
0: And, and was there some personal, uh, emotional or otherwise catalyst that made you step uh, out into being a public speaker about this stuff? Or did you was that a natural progression of the pure joy and thrill of discovering your own truths and wanting to share them?
1: I wouldn't say it was a joy or a thrill. Um, it felt more like a necessity. Um oh, I just knew. I just knew from the time that I started encountering this information, I just knew I had to get it out to people. I mean that was the that was the number one overriding thing that I felt. And I I at first I was thinking, well, how can I do this? I was literally thinking, well, I, I like that that program that podcast. I could download that. I could burn it onto a CD and hand it out to some of my friends here in Japan. I mean that was the kind of thing I was thinking about at the time. And, uh, and then it was actually, I mean, uh, this is a, a funny one for some people in the audience, I'm sure, but no, I, I was listening to Alex Jones' radio show at the time, and one of the things that he said repeatedly in his broadcasts was, you can get out there, you can do this yourself, start a website. And one day I was sitting there listening to that message, and I thought, you know what, why not? Why not? I've never in my life contemplated starting a website, never thought of podcasting or or any sort of media, I never even crossed my mind that I would ever do that. And it just suddenly hit me one day. And literally within a process of a couple weeks, I had already um, gotten my friend here to help me design the website. I already knew exactly what I wanted to do with it and what I I was going to do a podcast and I was going to have extensive documentation and I even knew how I wanted it laid out. And it just came to me And it's kind of strange because I'm not a particularly spontaneous person. I usually plan things out well in advance, and I'm very meticulous and uh, kind of perfectionist, so I tend to leave things to... um procrastinate because I want everything perfect before I start it. The website was the exact opposite. It came to me in a rush. I started it as soon as I could. And before I knew it, I was podcasting and just never looked back. So um, it was kind of an amazing process looking back at it. And I can't even really describe why I did it or how I did it. It just sort of happened to to me.
0: And and your website is really beautiful. It's really carving and and it seems really, um, it's just conventional and, And it seems like CNNBC or whatever uh, sort of vibe, but at the same time, the information is always mind-boggling and very original as well you talk to some really interesting people and um, get often get the first uh, new t- I get a lot of new information from you so I'm really thankful that you did set it up and that you know this is a place where because we all get our diff- our information for, for different reasons as well and for me I'd like to say you're extremely serious and responsible and your journalism is top-notch but you're hilarious as well and that is a beautiful thing and and now you literally have tens of millions of people who view and have viewed your stuff. And I mean, for anyone out there who doesn't know, um, we should attach nine eleven in a nutshell to this um, because that's probably your most popular video, and it and it shows everybody in five minutes how nine uh, eleven uh, the official story is the conspiracy theory from hell. So, but you know, uh, uh, beyond that, which I consider such old news now. Um, You know, everything that you put out is always uh, mind-blowing for me. So I know what you mean about the airport feeling as well. I got pulled uh, pulled up when I went into England last year. And um, they kept me for five hours in, in English customs and they asked for my phone and my computer and my diary and they took it all away from me, which was horrible because my diary is just, mm. that's like asking to look inside my underpants basically. Mm. And if they would have done that, I would have drawn the line. Yeah. <laughs> as much as, you know, oh, I'm not going to say that. That just make me sound unprofessional. But um, <laughs> And I had this little Nazi chick who was like, we need to check your bags. Is that your bag on the carousel? We need to check your bags. And I was like, okay, fine. And I, I was running along behind her and, and I, I started to realize what was happening to me. And I said to her, look, I don't know what's going on here, but you seem angry at me. So if you already think... Have found something in my bag. I want you to know that it's not mine. I would never carry anything across the border. And uh, I've just been sleeping in Madrid airport last night. And every time you go to the toilet, you don't take 50 kilos of luggage. So we're checking the airport CCTV if you find anything in my thing. And they were like, Oh, you're a bit paranoid, aren't you? (laughs) And I was like, Well, yes, I am paranoid because I do a blog that has about 50 to 100 readers a day no one but it's all about the world's pedophile gangs and the police corruption and the judges corruption and all of these things so yes I would consider myself a little bit paranoid when I'm crossing through your border and I know that the authorities in this country may well have a little purple mark next to my name so do you travel a lot
1: Uh, I wouldn't say a lot. Certainly not now that I have the son. Um, I'm a stay-at-home dad, so I I hardly even get out of the house, let alone out of the country.
0: That's unreal. Congratulations on him as well. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing for you and your wife. So, did you have um, any people that you started to talk to and, you know, go crazy uh, trying to sort of bounce this stuff off when you first started to come into really juicy information?
1: Um, to be honest, I think I've had a very different experience than a lot of people have, because I know a lot of people, I've I've gotten a lot of feedback over the years from people who've been very frustrated because they've encountered this information and their best friend or their, their family or, or someone they care about just doesn't see it and and it causes the, the you know, a rift between them. And I can certainly understand that because it really, once you start to really get into this information, it really does completely change your worldview and that can't, that can't happen without it being reflected in your relationships. So it really could, I mean, I I, uh, totally understand how it could rip relationships apart and that could be a terrible thing. I've been quite blessed with that from that perspective. Um, When I first started encountering this and, and sharing it with people, I've had friends here In real life, in Japan, that I've uh, I've talked to that are completely sympathetic, and some people there were there before me, so uh, uh, no problem with that. And then with my family, um, my parents were completely receptive to this information when I first started uh, talking to them about it. And in fact, now that I think back to my childhood, I think back to stories that my father would tell me sometimes that I thought were just you know, what's he talking about? He's just crazy He's talking about the Knights Templar and discovering gold and whatever <laughs> and all of this. Yeah. And I thought, what is he talking about? What is this? And now looking back, I think he already kind of knew some of this stuff. Even Oh,
0: yeah. Time. And that's probably why they were receptive because that he had laid the groundwork because the groundwork is recognizing that this is thousands of years old this plan if not you know obviously hundreds and probably thousands and uh yeah we're we're seeing a sort of an end game we really are in this in these times and so um i think your dad's probably so proud of you what you've taken and done with it
1: i hope so <laughs> i think that's all that is. <laughs> ball
0: and ran with it yeah well that's great and so did you ever lose any friends? Did uh, does any, maybe it's because of the way you talk and uh, maybe I'm just such a crazy arguer, you know, maybe uh, I find that I fight with a lot of people, not fight, but I yeah, I do. I scream sometimes. Uh, I really can't stay calm as much as I would love to and should.
1: Yeah, no. I again, I can understand what you're saying. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've lost a friendship or anything over this. I think people just kind of accept it. Um, I don't know if that's a testament to my ability to communicate it or just their willingness to put up with me. But, <laughs> but either way, <laughs> I guess I have great friends. But, um, but no, I, I do. I mean, there's obviously you spend more time and you gravitate towards the things that uh, that you that that interest you. So obviously, um, I, I think the levels of of communication that I have with different friends has probably changed. Because I oh I can be more talkative with this person because we can talk about these issues or that type of thing. But it's not it's never caused a huge rift for me because I don't I don't tend to proselytize this to people. I mean I certainly share my viewpoint and I, you know if people are asking my opinion I'm happy to give it. But uh, but I don't push it to the point where if you don't believe what I believe on this issue I'm not going to talk to you that kind of thing. Um, I don't I don't see the point in that to a large extent, Um, and again, I think that this is the type of thing that, like in my case, I, I think I had some of the groundwork prepared because I had experienced certain things, so when I started getting the information, it kind of made sense to me in a way. I tend to think of other people out there it in that way, I mean, maybe they haven't had the preparatory experiences. maybe the seeds are being planted now. I'm happy for the seeds to be planted now and the and it to flower later. that's really up to them and that's not something that I can i I feel that I can force or I can affect in any way so i'm I'll certainly again i'll I'll talk to people and we'll we'll discuss things. We'll argue if that it comes to that but um I don't let it consume me or consume the relationship because i I think that's counterproductive in the end i I don't think you can actually make someone have that conversion experience i don't think you can make someone wake up all you can do is show them some information and uh, tell them how you got to where you are and they'll do with it what they will
0: that is beautiful. I, I don't stop any relationships, and I'm very blessed that even people I've lost my shit with have um, stayed, re- remained true to me as a unconditional friends, so I'm happy for that. But uh, I just wish that I, I wasn't so uh, extreme in my, um, it is probably proselytizing, and so that word has just made me realize I've got to pull my head in a little bit especially with people who I love and want to always keep around me. Well,
1: but I don't, um, I don't think the proselytizing urge is a bad thing. I mean, cuz this is information that that you and and myself and the people who are watching this know is is transformational. It is life changing and it really is an important thing for for the future of humanity. So we can't yes. un, we can't overstress how important it is and that's exactly yeah. where that proselytizing urge comes from and I understand that completely. It's just perhaps maybe I'm more cynical about it that I don't think that people will necessarily just see the information, the data, and immediately transform their worldview. I think there's a lot of psychological gears that have to be turned in their own head. And again, there's nothing I can do to make that happen. All I can do is show the data and, uh, and tell people what's, what it's done for my life. But um, I guess That's... it's one of those things where I'd rather be the change and show the change rather than tell people about the change.
0: Yes, I'm a big fan of Mark Passio, and I've learned a lot from his um, website. What on earth is happening? And uh, I, I like in there's a few of his podcasts where he says. I'm not going to give it to you in baby steps. I'm not going to spoon-feed you in little mouthfuls. I'm going to shove it down your throat (laughs) because I I like that sort of sense of urgency that he has as well because when I look at some things like uh, Miley Cyrus doing Carly at the whatever, Video Music Awards or something, I realize we're being noticed. These are end times. Something is going to happen and change everything in a sudden way. Well that's, that's a-, a
1: good point because I should say from my own experience I mean one of the one of the early influences I won't say the person who woke me up but one of the early influences on me was Alex Jones who's obviously a very controversial figure because he is so out there and such a a big forceful personality and a lot of people hate that, absolutely detest that style of presentation. For me, it was effective. It really yeah. did cut through my conditioning in a way that uh, that helped me to see some of this information for the first time and to, and to challenge it. Well, that can't be right. He's got to be crazy. <laughs> oh, wait, no, that's actually true. So for, it worked for me. Um, so mm-hmm. I... I I'd, I'm also not a big believer in one-size-fits-all solutions. I mean, I I couldn't be that type of person if I tried. It would come across as fake, because that's not the type of person I am. I have my own style of delivery. There are people out there who hate that style of delivery. There are other people who love it. There are not. Trust me, I, I hear some, some of the haters. I, I, again, I don't really mind. Matters. There will be people who hate. There will be people who love. And uh, and I think all I can do is just reflect honestly who I am and, uh, and the people people who will gravitate to that will gravitate to that, and that's all to the good.
0: Well, I think you're doing a wonderful job, and I certainly have learned to trust you, and I want to thank you for being what I consider a trustworthy fellow human being, and uh, being a great journalist. So in what ways do you comply with or defy government? I was just watching a video on you earlier. uh, let me try. Uh, it, actually, it's one of my favorites that you ever did, the Stockholm Syndrome ones. And it's, uh, you read from uh, a quote from a guy, a Michael, someone I can't remember. And uh, yeah, just, uh, I just, I want to know personally, if you don't mind talking about it, in what ways, how you deal with that stuff.
1: Well, that's, I mean, again, that's an exceptionally important question for everyone who's seriously involved in this. I mean, I think it's the question of being it this being entertainment or is it your lifestyle i mean is this something you really take to heart or is it something that you're just talking about and so i've i've dealt with this question in different ways over the years and i think that's one of the the main ways that i think you can see the transformation of of myself and my philosophy since the beginning of the corbett report i think when i started this i was still very much steeped in the idea of electoral politics and and at the time you know we got to get bush out of office and things like this and and that was a driving concern. And over the years, obviously, I've I think I've evolved away from that, and and through people like Ron Paul, towards an idea of individual liberty being more important than the electoral political process, which has only ever gotten us into the situation we're in. It's never um, transformed society for the better in the long run. So, um, so I've given up on that idea of that there's political maneuvering that can be done, and I, I've really come to the idea that that for my own sake. Uh, um, for for, uh, the sake of myself and my family i am not interested in in uh, fighting the government i'm not interested in in taking up arms or taking up a pitchfork and storming tokyo and you know (laughs) demanding my rights in that way Um, i think that when you when you approach it in that way you create the 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 the, you create the battle you create the 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 I don't know how to say it, the um, uh, the conflict it's itself. An
0: energy, it's an energy friction by putting up something for, exactly to fight right. against. Yes,
1: it's a friction and it creates the heat, it creates the sparks, it creates the fire. And I think it only ever works to the detriment of humanity. I mean, we can look at revolution after revolution, people picking up arms and pitchforks, and it always ends in in bloodbaths or at the very best i mean you could look at something like an an american revolution and what did that ultimately result in i mean it resulted in a government that was going to be the the most contained the most the smallest you know the the most free country that the world has ever seen and what is it now it is absolutely a nightmare vision of totalitarianism so how did we get there well obviously if we keep doing the same things we're going to keep getting the same results so i've really come around to the idea that the the most important thing That we can do is try to detach ourselves from the governmental system more so than than to fight against it and i always always get a few people in the audience who will always email me to say something like well you know they're going to come after us at some point you know once we build up the you know alternative systems enough and yes of course i think that the oligarchy that that exists and presumably always has as uh, aldous huxley said in his famous uh, last speech um I, i think they obviously will uh, come at come at this movement in different ways as it continues to progress and we've already seen the beginnings of this them trying to make collecting rainwater illegal and things like this just <laughs> craziness of that sort but i i i really do believe that at at a certain point when there are enough people doing this that's not going to work um, brute force cannot work as a a way to repress humanity over long periods of time uh, it just always fails and it always has throughout history Uh, The thing I'm more concerned about is the the idea that we can be... conditioned into actually desiring our own enslavement. And I think that's, that's the really insidious part of all of this, is that if we keep looking for leaders, and we keep looking for political solutions, and we keep turning to government, um, we are going to be led into this, um, the, the New World Order, the Matrix, whatever it is. And In fact, it's going to be more and more technological from here on in, as we're starting to tinker with the human genome and all of this craziness that is truly transforming what it means to be human. So, uh, it's an exceptionally important time, which is why i think the most important thing that i do on a day-to-day basis is what i do with my son yes yeah. truly creating the next generation and shaping and and hopefully demonstrating to them what this life is is about and what it should be about is the most important thing that any of us can be doing, because I'm under no delusion that this web of control that's been put in place over the course of centuries, if not millennia, as you said, is going to fall overnight. I, I, I would love to be able to say that it'll fall in my lifetime. I have no confidence that it will, but I really do think that this. if this is an intergenerational project, then it really does have to start somewhere, and, uh, and it has to start with each and every single one of us working on the next generation generation of human beings and so uh, so that's something I very much have in the forefront of my mind with when I look at my son and uh, hopefully teaching him about how we can we don't have to rely on this system how we as human beings can come together as individuals voluntarily interacting with each other to create something better than what we have and uh and if i didn't believe that i wouldn't be here talking to you and i'd probably be off in a corner somewhere sucking my thumb so um so that's why i'm here doing this and and i I think that's the most productive thing that i can be doing and i don't want to speak for anyone else everyone has their own methods but i i really do advocate it for people out there to be thinking about how they can be detaching themselves from the System and being an example for the next generation.
0: Yeah, I don't believe in hurting myself um, by my defiance of the government. But uh, like, even uh, I-, I think I learned a long time ago when I was about twenty-something. Uh, you know, don't uh, I got trampled by a horse at a uranium protest? And you know, the, despite all of the people not wanting the uranium out of the ground. Um, despite all the people who protest, they still do it. And I just got so disheartened and recognized that I was going to only damage myself by going and fighting in that front line or whatever. And so I, um, I've i always been looking for other ways to get to the root of the problem. And then I guess in the last sort of eight eight years or something, uh, because of major events like 9-11 has made me uh, – research what's behind the dollar and what's behind the politics, what's behind media, what's behind uh, entertainment, and finding that it's all the same answer across all of these fields has been the most enlightening part because it does make you recognize that there is a very – it is organized. That's what – I often fight with my brother um, and he always just completely poo-poos the idea that it could be organized. He he just cannot see – I mean, obviously, he hasn't uh, – Done the same research and he's lived in in a in a different way, so he hasn't come to that information in the way that I've come to it. But that is the hardest thing for me to sort of try and explain. And one of my friends uh, just wrote to me yesterday saying that there's only one um, one. Not episode one copy of uh, Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope in the Auckland Library in New Zealand, and that they've been reducing the actual copies and that they're making digitalized copies that God knows what they can do to, you know. And uh, so, I'm realizing that just like they burned the libraries, uh you know, thousands of years ago, they're they're doing the same now, constantly cleaning things up all the time, um, so that we uh, have less and less information about who runs us, who owns us, who's harvesting our energy for uh, their benefit, and who has set up the whole slave system that we're a part of.
1: It's so true. And uh, again, for people who uh, it's it's generally people who refuse to look at the information who who maintain that it couldn't possibly be organized because it's a uh, it's an open conspiracy and that was the name of one of H. G. Wells's books actually so, um uh, it, and it has been for for centuries and and we can look back at a at someone like an H. G. Wells who's of course thought of as a science fiction writer but was actually the person who r- drafted the first draft of the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights which gives you all these wonderful um, fuzzy lovey dovey um types of human rights and then at the End says, but if you're against the UN, we can take any of these away that we want. Oh, uh, so I had no idea. It's an interesting little document. People should uh, should go back and review it and then take a look towards the end of the document and see what it says about, uh, about the United Nations having the ability to take people's rights away. Um, so he
0: was the first draft writer and obviously then they threw it around with a few other writers, or what? Yeah,
1: I, I, it's been a few years since I've looked at the uh, the uh, origin of it, uh, but uh, he was definitely involved in the drafting of it at um, the early stages, and uh, and it ended up becoming what it is now. Yeah. Um, document that we're supposed to revere, but don't read too carefully. Um, it was or, part of
0: it. Sorry.
1: Well, girl? I was just going to say, or we could look at Carol Quagley, obviously, great example, Georgetown professor, name-checked by Bill Clinton, very prestigious, wrote uh, Tragedy in Hope, Anglo-American Establishment, all of these great works, with access to the archives of the Council on Foreign Relations, these these groups that are often talked about by these crazy conspiracy theorists. He had access to their archives and said, hey, guess what? Yeah, it's a big conspiracy, and uh, I, I Agree with it. I think it's a great thing. The only thing I disagree with is they want to keep it quiet for some reason. And yeah. then, uh, and then, towards the end of his career, he uh, he found out uh, after the fact that they had destroyed the first uh, the first printing uh, template for the book despite the fact that was in the contract that they shouldn't do that um it was destroyed and so um he he was surprised at that i wonder what's going on um apparently he didn't really understand the subject that he was writing about too well um you could, is... at, you could look at you can look at someone like uh, charles uh, galton darwin writing a book called the next million years and i really suggest people take a look at that it's an interesting little book he basically says Evolution will change humanity in a million years, but hey, you know what we 've got technology now we can do it in the course of centuries and uh, and he was started saying well." What would we want to change humanity to be like? Well, we'd want to make the men a little bit less manly, because we want them to not be a threat to the the uh, power structure, and we want uh, we want fertility to decrease. We want um, uh, he has this list of things, and uh, lo and behold, um, they're playing around with these chemicals back in the 1930s, and bisphenol A, and they think, oh, this is an estrogen mimicking compound. We should use it as an estrogen therapy. They try it out as that for a little while, and then a couple decades days later they start using it as one of the ingredients to make up a certain type of plastic that ends up getting put in everything from baby bottles to to the um uh resin that they used to print uh, on on the ink that they used to print on uh, sheet re- receipts and yeah uh, and the lining of food cans i wonder how that estrogen mimicker just managed to get in there and, uh, and now of course we
0: see day. The state water and tell you you have to drink two liters of water a day. So then you have to buy it in biosphenol A bottles.
1: Oh, of and I mean before you know, it, you're and, growing fruits uh, and, and then we have Literally, we have. Uh, um, uh, fish that are becoming hermaphroditic and things from all of the chemicals in the waters I, I, it sounds crazy, it sounds insane until you actually pull up the, the actual stories about what's all of these various pieces of the puzzle and I guess you can look at all of these pieces of this puzzle, I mean the thousands of more data points than I can possibly say in, a, in one conversation and you could say, yep, all a coincidence um, to me the coincidence theorists are the crazy ones, but uh, yeah. maybe that's just my perspective
0: Yes, no, I, I used to have the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights up in my bathroom. I don't know why, I just, I thought it was a lovely document, you know. And I as it was I used the white beard, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it should have been, but over the years, <laughs> I, I used to sit there on the toilet and look at it, and I, over the years I just realized none of this is being upheld. The UN are the greatest uh, defilers of this document on the planet probably, uh, in really subtle and hidden ways or or ways that aren't hidden but aren't reported on by their loyal dog media. So, yeah, it's been really interesting for me to now, I really can look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as toilet paper, (laughs) since you give
1: me uh, that little end. Article 29.3, these rights and freedoms may in no case be exercised contrary to the purposes and principles of the United Nations.
0: (laughs) Oh, that makes so much sense now. I have to pass that on to my friends who work at the United Nations. Oh my God! It's a little it's
1: Easter egg that uh, they put at the very end that they hope no one will read. I guess
0: <laughs> you're sort of tired by that stage, yeah. maybe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, sounds good. Sounds wonderful. I like these rights.
0: Oh, freedom. Yeah. So, who were your great teachers? Uh, do you want to, you know, who who made you start thinking outside consensus reality and who have continued over the years to be, you know, your best sources if you want to share them?
1: Well, again, again I think um, my parents were obviously hugely influential in shaping who I became as um, I'm sure a lot of, well pretty much everyone's parents um are very
0: my dad never lectured me on the knights templar (laughs) yeah well
1: yeah Uh, again uh, some of the things that my father talked about when i was young i didn't understand until i was much older but but yeah it was all part of the background and my mother just one of the most caring wonderful human beings um that i've ever had the pleasure of knowing and it was uh, a blessing to have her as my mother she passed away a few years ago um just before the 311 earthquake and tsunami here so uh, very 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 terrible time for me uh, a couple of a few years ago now um but uh and then i was i was also very lucky in terms of my my education um i i know everyone has horror stories from from childhood and schooling and the trauma of public education indoctrination (laughs) and i have my own i suppose but in terms of my teachers i always had very supportive teachers and always some at least one or two teachers that i could really look up to that that really did help um Help, really did help me to think outside the box. I, I I also had a lot of teachers that, as a child even, I was quite um, precocious at times and intellectually precocious. I always wanted to argue against the teacher. And uh, I know some teachers are definitely not into that and don't want to hear <laughs> that. I always had teachers that were quite supportive of that but and that encouraged me, so that was yeah. great.
0: Um, I had some good teachers the same who really loved it when I challenged them, but then I did have a couple who were just... Uh, really really put out by stating the obvious yeah
1: (laughs) yeah no i know it happens sometimes um and and from progressing from there i mean i think um i can't even think before i started encountering this information in terms of politically um i read i read chomsky and things like this but i certainly don't look up to chomsky at this point Mm. Um, there's really nothing from that period that I can think of from from sort of the, the cultural or media zeitgeist that was really a, a positive influence on me in that way. At the time, I was more interested in in literature and, and reading books uh, than I was in in politics anyway. So perhaps that doesn't count. And then when I started to get into this, it was uh, a lot of podcasters and, and people like um, Alex Jones was influential at, on me at first. Um, Alan Watts was influential oh, I love in the Alan. beginning for me. Um, uh, a bunch of people. The Money Masters was an extremely important documentary for me that really helped, uh, helped me along in my process of waking up. So I owe a lot to a lot of different uh, people and uh, hopefully I've, I've put some back into the, the uh, collective pot out there so if people can draw from it and, and hopefully start their own process.
0: And then some. You've done wonders. You've just put out an absolute library of your own, and um, and and it's like I say, it's always good. And so, do, what what videos were you watching on YouTube when you first got that Wi-Fi connection in your flat? Uh,
1: ones that I can remember. Um, I definitely remember watching. Um, well, I, I started out watching things like The Daily Show or whatever, which were kind of you know where I was coming from politically at the time, and and just seemed in tune with what I was uh, thinking about and and, uh, and the way that I thought. But I always saw, saw these related videos to these 9-11 vi- truth videos. And, and I, so I'd click on one occasionally and some of them were just silly, just pods floating in the sky kind of thing. Um, but some of them yep. were quite interesting and, um, and and infuriating, and I wanted to prove them wrong. And then th- 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 those ones kind of draw drew me in, and I, I couldn't um, actually disprove what they were saying, and that drew me in even further. So um, some of the ones that I remember, I mean, certainly I saw loose change at a certain point. I saw um, there was one called 9-11 Mysteries, which was an interesting one back in the day. Um, which was supposed to be, from what I understand, the first part of a series of documentaries, but I think they only ever made the first one, or I only ever saw the first one. Uh, The Money Masters was another one. Um, The Century of the Self by Adam Curtis. um, I
0: haven't seen that.
1: You really should. Um, And I've done a podcast warning about Adam Curtis because I think he implants some very, very mainstream ideas in these documentaries um, that that really go against the, the alternative narrative. But having said that, they are very important documentaries, because there's always little bits and pieces and information in there that are interesting. And The Century of the Self, especially the first episode of that, I think it's a three-part series, the first one is exceptionally interesting and talks about Edward Bernays, the American nephew of uh, Sigmund Sigmund Freud, and how he adapted all of Freud's uh, insights into the psyche into marketing. And making people do things that they wouldn't otherwise do um just a fascinating I think of him really every
0: time i have it. a freedom torch
1: yeah exactly freedom <laughs> torch um bacon and eggs uh, fluoride we can thank mr bernay's for a lot of things
0: feminism there, getting out of the house and working
1: for the women <laughs> yeah, it's all yeah. part and parcel of that uh wonderful freedom um so yes uh, uh they were all very influential on me early on and from there it was just a like a skipping stone across water, just going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And, uh, before you know it, you blink an eye and you're seven years older and you're, you got a face full of beard and a 11 month old son. <laughs>
0: The house. <laughs> uh well, it's, it's a beautiful thing, the way life works. And did you find that the information came to you in a synchronistic fashion, not just you searching, but also the influences that came into you? Did they, did they appear strangely to correlate with each other at times?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's one of the, that is one of the strange things that happens when you're producing content on a regular basis. Um, doing a weekly podcast, I always have to be thinking about, oh, well, well, what will I do next week? And sometimes I'll just set a a topic. And then during the course between between setting the topic and then actually doing the podcast during that course of that week, there uh, there are so many times when I've found certain news stories have happened or certain things have happened. But in that week that that are (laughs) specifically about the thing I'd already planned to do, um it's happened so many times, it's it's almost mind boggling. Maybe it's just pattern recognition, but it, it's times it's in which it's spirit. it's really interesting.
0: I, I, if my body gets goosebumps, it's not pattern recognition. It's spirit. A spirit moves my body to tell me when truth is being spoken, or beautiful music is being sung, or whatever. So I can tell you with my body's proof, it's spirit or something. So.
1: Well, I, I one that I can think of off the top of my head, I did an entire podcast about monetary reform and how the mon- money issue is going to be so important. The economy we're we're facing collapse. And I put it out, I think, I think the day before the Lehman Brothers collapse. And uh, (laughs) um, it was just, it was just incredible timing um, on that. And I, I, again, it's just things like that happen so often um, that you you just got to shake your head. You don't know.
0: And do you feel you're fulfilling some higher purpose as well as your own um, satisfaction?
1: Yes, I don't, I don't know what kind of higher purpose there is i don't claim to have any special access to that but uh but i'm certainly not adverse to the idea that there is that there is something more to this universe and uh, i'm certainly not a materialist uh, i think that there is something something else out there and i don't know what kind of conduit people are for that i don't know how that Condu- process works but but i'm just trying I, to be uh, yeah. receptive to to what's coming to me and and pro- and projecting it in the best way that i can
0: for me the word conduit says everything because it wasn't until I was probably in my late teens that I recognized that the possibility that the human body is a receiver the brain is a receiver and that our thoughts maybe do not are not just generated from these meat sacks of brain in our skulls you know that possibly that we can communicate or, or some some, the the great organizing force of the universe may well work through us, even though we think we're gener- self generating everything that happens inside us. Right.
1: Well, I, I think so, I've always been receptive to that idea, especially because of course I do come at this from the logical rational background that I have with my education in literature, <laughs> and and one of the the concepts that that we we study at the you know in the post secondary level when we're studying literature is the idea that. Uh, you know thoughts uh, it's it's ultimate hubris to think that our thoughts are our own that we have we have come up with this thought that this is something new and original with us and we we did it of course not there is a cultural context in which everything is thought and uh, and t- it's the ultimate hubris to think that i am responsible for for what i've done in a, a concrete sense i mean of course i do agree that people do have the right to what they produce but um but i don't I don't see it as being uh, something that's just that that comes from within myself. It's something that I am steeped in a situation that that is feeding into me in all sorts of different ways, consciously and subconsciously, all the time. And it comes out and gets regurgitated in in a different way, in a different format. And they often say there's nothing new under the sun. And uh, I I think to a certain extent, ideologically, I, I I agree with that. I think that we are just we're just finding different ways to put the old eternal truths in new contexts for the the situation we find ourselves in, and I think we have to keep anchored in that because there is a, it, it can be very tempting for us to think of ourselves as creating our generation anew every you know every generation. Um, But again, I think it's ultimate hubris, and I think we have to understand that a lot of the issues that we're facing are the same issues that humanity has been facing since the dawn of civilization, and we're just facing it at a different technological stage, but but it doesn't mean that the issue itself is any different, or that our reaction to it should be any different. I mean, I, I have had forefathers and foremothers who have fought and died and Sweated and and broken their backs uh, Trying to to make this world a better place And it would be be pretty sad If I was the one, the weak link in the chain That let everyone down by, by just giving in To the tyranny
0: Yes, yes for me, um, I, I like to think that, that this is why I don't like to work with scripts and I like to be spontaneous in a fresh moment because I recognize that letting the universe or whatever name you give it flow through you um, off the cuff is the greatest respect that you can give to that universe rather than sort of thinking your mind itself. Even though you can tidy things up, you can perfect them. I really love to give that credit to the to the. Spontaneity of the moment and whatever it is that I'm a part of, and I and I like to tap into that. I think any, I, I like to think that's really honouring nature or God. Or so you were talking about Charles Galton Darwin. That's Charles Darwin's grandfather, right?
1: Grandson, I believe.
0: I um, thought he was the grandfather of Charles Darwin, the evolution.
1: Know, um, Erasmus Darwin was Charles's father, right? I
0: I don't know. All I know is that they were having, the families were having sex with the Potters or the, you know, the Wedgwoods or something. Exactly.
1: The Darwins and the Wedgwoods um, are sometimes called the Darwoods because they were so (laughs) interbred. Um, But also the Galtons, the Huxleys, they are, they're all kind of floating around in there, and it's interesting to see, it's interesting to see the number of people who are connected to the family one way or another, through one relation or another, who end up being on the, you know, the head of the eugenic society, or what have you. And, uh, <laughs> people that you wouldn't necessarily even think of, like John Maynard Keynes, who's always thought of as an economist, was also a rabid eugenicist, and uh, the head of the eugenic society at one point, so wow. um, it, it it's interesting, and of course he was also a relation to, to Darwin. its It always goes back to the same little family milieu that uh, that was there in the late 19th century that came up with the theory. And lo and behold, they became the, the families that, that interbred and became the heads of the eugenics societies that have guided this philosophy along through the last century.
0: And I see it everywhere when I'm walking in the street and there's chemtrails. And and, and when I, I walked past a sign today on a wall, it said, caution, rainwater, do not drink <laughs> above a tap on the side of a building. Yeah. It was so funny. I just thought, what, what utopian dystopian nightmare am I in? And it's it's more and more all the time.
1: Places you could get arrested for drinking that rainwater.
0: Really? Especially somewhere in
1: the United States, they tried to make it illegal to collect rainwater.
0: Yes, I I hear I hear these things, and I you know without being there, it's hard to verify. But um, oh god, it's just getting crazier and crazier. I thought Charles Galton was Charles Darwin, our our um, evolutionist friends' uh, grandfather, but you may be right. He maybe is the grandson. We'll no, both he's have. A, to check. He's a he's a
1: combination Galton Darwin. Francis Galton was the uh, the founder of or the person who coined the term eugenics. He was Darwin's cousin and. Uh, and at some point, I guess, his uh, daughter married Darwin's son or something like that. At any rate, it's one of those intermarriage things.
0: I went to a uh, Nassim Haramain, uh sort of lecture a few years ago, um, and at one stage in the lecture there was a question time, and I mentioned something about the eugenics agenda, and Nasim haramine was like, there's no eugenics agenda, that's ridiculous, that's conspiracy. And I was like... I could not listen to another thing that the guy said ever since that day. And I loved him up until that point. I'd learned a lot from him. But hearing him say that in a room full of people just – I couldn't – I couldn't reconcile that there would be any reason for, for him saying that other than to steer us in the wrong direction and that he could only be working for those people if he's trying to tell a roomful of people that that's not real because it is, free, I mean, freedom of information requests have proven that, it was, that it's been um, a very big agenda being played out for at least 60 years publicly and um, openly. So, yeah, it's Again, funny it's how... Another one-
1: of those open conspiracies all you have to do is to track the eugenics society in in america and in britain and then as it morphed into the population council and literally shared an office with the population council for a little while set up of course by rockefeller i mean it all leads back to the same people in the same offices working in the same things they just changed the name and and literally the eugenics quarterly um became something like (laughs) Biodemography <laughs> journal or something like that i mean they just changed the name and yeah. you're expected to believe that yep eugenics is gone
0: yeah we don't do that anymore yeah. no we don't and then do you get people like
1: uh, the co-founder of dna this, this stru- the the heli- double helix structure of dna um i can't remember i think it was watson or, or uh, one of those i have no idea Crick? no watson uh anyway famous uh, scientist came out uh, a, a few years ago and there was a big controversy because he said that um well you know i mean uh, africans can't can't uh, chain our level of, of education or something along those lines and everyone was quite shocked that this this you know this scientific hero would say something like this and uh, and basically if you trace it back i mean he worked at the cold springs harbor laboratory which was the birthplace of the american eugenics movement so it all goes back to the same places it's all out there in the open you can research the backgrounds of these people and where they're coming from and what they're working on and what organizations they belong to it, it is i mean it's not a theory it it's yeah. there you can actually go and research these things but um so people who deny it are either stupid or they're lying
0: they're lying to themselves to preserve their mind in a state which means that they can continue taking money for doing what they're doing but that's just my opinion (laughs) so when i think about um darwin i remember alan watts taught me about darwin just saying that he he started this whole concept um of us thinking that it's a dog eat dog world and that we are all uh you know, um, it's survival of the fittest. So therefore, if there are people more stronger than you or more richer or more powerful, it's only because you're just a little bit less than them on the evolutionary scale. And you don't, know, don't get out, don't step out of your place because, um, you've got your place and we have ours, you know? And so that infuriated me so much. I was already pissed off at Darwin because that was the religion I was raised in. And, uh, Uh, you know, thank God I didn't have Catholicism, but Darwinism is just as offensive to me now because I can recognize the way it's been used to steer the population into this sort of self-flagellatory state that we're in, whereby we accept being ruled over with violence and that we accept um, our our livelihood decisions being made by people who are ultimately always taking more and more of our freedoms away. So that's
1: been a, a nice right and 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 the standard line for the uh for people is to say well darwin didn't didn't believe that darwin wasn't arguing that it was it was his cousin galton who came up with that the social darwinism and all that that was all him but if you actually go and read darwin no it was in there um the um uh what's the uh the famous work um not descent of man the other one origin of uh, species yes. um and the subtitle what is the subtitle something like for the the preservation of of the ra- uh, the races it's
0: just or, or it's just in the next room i can go and get it because i think dad's left it out sort of subtly i sure i could look it I... up
1: in about three seconds here on the internet but at any yeah, rate but... um, it, it's it's even embedded in the title and he goes on to talk about the irish as being you know an inferior race of human beings and things like this so it's embedded in his own work as well to a lesser extent but uh, but it's interesting then to see him being sort of the experiment. I mean, that's what the Darwin Wedgwood and all of that interbreeding was all about. It's If you truly believe in the in the social Darwinistic principles and in the eugenics principles, then you do it in your own life, and you start interbreeding only with the finest, and of course, only the finest are us, Darwins and Wedgwoods and Knoxleys. So they yeah. started doing this, you know, thinking they're going to produce the Superman, and of course, Darwin had, uh, married his first cousin, who I think was also the product of a first cousin marriage going back and back and back, and, uh, and of course, they they ended up having numerous children dying in childhood, sickly, frail creatures um, as a result of all this inbreeding. Surprise, surprise. So, I mean, again, they disproved it themselves in their own life, but and yet continued to propound it for, for generations hence.
0: Yeah, and, and continue to sort of propel themselves into greater and greater wealth and power because of our um, ignorance, really. So... I'd like to ask you, uh, we've got to wrap up in a minute because I'm trying to keep them around an hour, but I'd like to ask you... how you feel about the concept of life after death? Because um, that's a, I, for me, that's really when I started to, um, when I started to recognize myself as a spiritual being and not just a physical being. Then I I could let go of a lot of my fears about my physical existence, and uh, and that's when I started to, uh, when I found really great big injustices and I knew that I was um, possibly making myself a target by talking about them, uh, that's when I really, when I had a full understanding and subjective proving to myself that um, I'm not my body, then uh, that was how I, um, I, I I started to work like this. So I wanna ask you naturally if you, how you feel about that concept.
1: Well, I I would say this, I certainly don't fear death. Um, it's not something that I I think I, again, I don't have the spiritual answers, and I don't ask people to turn to me for them, but I, it's not something that I fear. I don't, and I, again, I'm not a, a materialist. I'm not a naturalist. I think that there is something more to this universe than what we can quantify or reduce or measure or put in a weight scale. And um, and I just, uh, the, the bioreductionist uh, explanations for consciousness are not convincing to me. I think there is something more to consciousness than just atoms and quantum states and all of this. Um, there's something unquantifiable there, and again, I don't claim to know what that is or how that functions. But uh, but again, I'm I'm not afraid of death. I, I don't. I, I'm certainly happy with my life. I'm not wishing for death in any way, shape, or form. But um, but if it comes and when it comes, it'll come. And I uh, I. I Don't think that I'm I don't think that consciousness will die. I I, I don't know what that means But I, I don't think that it's going to uh, to be an end point for for the universe you know, when when we all die out
0: That's a that's a really nice answer. And uh, I think for me, it's nice to hear um, You know, it's nice to look at somebody so rational as you uh, who was also naturally attuned to you know as knowledge but not knowing how or why you know it, but just knowing that you think you know it, and that's um, that's a beautiful thing. For me, it's a peaceful feeling. I feel that we can't ever die um, at the wrong time. I, I, I somehow believe that uh, this stuff is possibly fated isn't even the right word but um that there is a that nothing can be wrong in in this great organizational chaos that we're in you know and for me it's the I just call it love I just call everything love because that's a great word that encompasses the possibility for how everything could happen all the darkness and the child-fucking and the you know the oppression of all of us and the pain and the torture and the shooting all the people in the head with the CIA <laughs> hidden you know it, it all is okay ultimately to me because I recognize that we possibly are the thing that recycles and recycles and recycles and also that might be one of the reasons why the great tragedies that occur on this planet ultimately are okay because they're not it's just a dream and it's just a changing of the facets of that dream does that make
1: any sense um, I, I think so <laughs> I think I understand what you're saying but let me put it this way from my own perspective if I could reduce everything that I've ever done my entire body of work everything that I've ever done for the Corbett report to one word and that word was love then I think it would be a, a that would be my mission accomplished I mean if that's what it, re- it reduces to at the end of the day then that's that's the message that I'm trying to put across in some way or other so um so I I,
0: I get that and uh, I think it is the reason and the season for why you do what you do and I think it comes out in your work so I'm glad that you could that you're you know hip with my um explanation of that and uh do you survive uh, financially off your work doing this
1: I actually do. And again, that's another thing that I sometimes have to pinch myself, that I am able to keep a, a roof over my head and, and food on our family's table through the kindness of strangers, literally. Um, and that's something that, uh, that I know a lot of people on this planet are not able to do. So I'm in an exceptionally lucky position, exceptionally um, wonderful position to be in for, to do this work that I'm doing, which is why I take it, I take the work very seriously. I don't take myself too seriously, I hope, but I do take this work seriously because I do think it's an important message. So I really do, I, I truly am grateful for the people out there that subscribe or buy my DVDs. It truly does make this, this website possible and the work that I'm doing possible. And, uh, I, I again, Five years ago, ten years ago, if you had asked me what I would be doing with my life, I could not have even conceived that I would be doing this for a living. So, um, it's just you never know where life's going to take you.
0: Yes, into being an internet sensation and a fantastic journalist and, and a true journalist. Because if you were a tr- if you'd gone to journalism school, it, I don't think you'd be doing as good a work as you're doing now. You know, you've ended up following your heart or or your or your head into this into this fantastic work, and um, you've managed to become a very rare species on Earth, which is a true journalist. Really, and it, it, there are so few. I, I mean, in the Western media on the Internet, I, I really think I could I could say, for me, I've only come, there's probably not even a thousand, you know, a thousand names.
1: I uh, I will graciously accept that, and I will try not to blush like a maiden at the fact that you're, you're saying all of that. But, but thank uh, you no i truly i truly do appreciate that feedback
0: oh uh, well it's i'm glad also that you're getting paid and not just getting compliments
1: you <laughs> both, do deserve both are it appreciated. <laughs> and
0: you put in you put in the effort and and i can see that the universe would glad <laughs> the universe that that the the energetic vacuum and and whatever it is that we're in would um naturally find Way, a way to bring its energy back for all the energy that you've pumped out over the time. Um, one last question, and uh, this is something that I always ask um, boyfriends when I go out on a date, and it's I always say it's probably why I'm single. Um, <laughs> tell me something about yourself that you don't want me to know.
1: My um... Daughter-
0: <laughs> I always wanna stop people because I'm like, that is such a rude question. It is a
1: rude question, but putting I'll, them I'll give it a go.
0: I'll give it a go. Um No don't, you ruin it. No, 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 no.
1: I think I think we can do something here. So uh something I don't want you to know. Um uh, I um I don't know if I'm currently wearing them. I'll have to think about that, but I have I have Chris special Christmas underwear that I wear <laughs> throughout the year because i like them so much they've got little snowmen on them so, very see
0: smart. that is why i love and trust you because you're honest you're so painfully honest that is you know that may well come back to haunt me that image but uh,
1: <laughs> that's, that's why you don't want to know that that's the next primary time, reason you don't want to know that
0: ne- next thank god you're already married because i would
1: have rejected <laughs> you
0: no, I would not have. I'd put up with anything to be um, to be your friend because I think you're a really great person. So, James, thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time just to chew the fat, and um, thank you for giving me the – incredible intelligence in your brain off the cuff like you have and um i just hope that you have a long and prosperous and wonderful life and um family time and you know just that everything goes great for you and i hope and we stay in touch i hope and um talk more over over the future
1: absolutely well thank you so much for the conversation it's definitely a different conversation than i'm used to but i appreciate that it's very very nice to have this conversation so thank you for having me
0: uh, my pleasure all right James have a have a lovely evening and uh, we'll speak again sometime
1: All right you too take care thank you goodbye.